Talk Live. Welcome to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, the founder, if one can use that parlance, of the Liberty Conspiracy. And I'm delighted to join you via the great team at Free Talk Live. Tonight, we get together to share key portions of Liberty Conspiracy Live, which can be heard live Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Rockman and Rumble. You can watch there, you can chat there, or you can watch on my Twitter slash X feed, which is at Guard Goldsmith. And of course, you can hop in after the fact and see any of the recorded programs on Rumble and Rockfin. And please feel free to visit my Substack, which is Gardner Goldsmith Substack. I know, inventive name. Hey, let's get right to it with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Remember this line. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. The reason I teed that up from 1996 is because... The United States government obviously doesn't have a very good track record. How many innocent people have been killed, even as Americans cheered them on? So I want to turn now to Jacob Hornberger's piece for today. Because that scene that you just saw is part of this. So let's think about what the United States has done as it has interfered with and destroyed millions of lives. He writes, Jacob Hornberger, and there he is uh, right there, head of the Future Freedom Foundation, founded in the 1989, I think it was. While some American mainstream commentators express concern about the large death toll among children in Gaza, we mustn't forget that when it is the U.S. government and specifically the U.S. national security branch of the government that is killing large numbers of children, Most U.S. mainstream commentators go into silent mode, or even worse, play supportive roles in such killings. Who can forget the 1990s when U.S. officials were killing hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children with nary a concern expressed by U.S. mainstream commentators? And Mr. Hornberger is not talking about the United States literally directly attacking with soldiers and bombs and weapons. He's talking about the earlier form of war, the blockade that was referred to by Leslie Stahl and answered in the affirmative, it was worth it, by Madeleine, I'm burning now, Albright. Oh, sure, it's true that those killings were being inflicted by economic sanctions rather than bombs, but so what, say some. The Iraqi children were just as dead. The Iraqi children were just as dead. What difference does it make, eh, to, to quote Hillary, whether a child is killed by sanctions instead of bombs? The official mindset towards the mass numbers of Iraqi children being killed by the U.S. government was perfectly reflected in the infamous response that Madeleine Albright gave in 1996 to Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes. 
Stahl pointed out that half a million Iraqi children had been killed by U.S. and U.N. sanctions, more than the number killed at Hiroshima as a result of the U.S. government's targeting of the civilian population, including children of that city with a nuclear bomb. Stahl asked Albright, is the price worth it? Albright replied, we think the price is worth it. End quote. Albright was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. As such, she was the official spokesperson for the U.S. government to the world. She was serving in the Clinton administration. No one within the government criticized her statement, and there was little, if any, condemnation among U.S. mainstream commentators. That's because her callous statement undoubtedly reflected the mindset of both her cohorts in the U.S. government and the mindset of the government's loyal supporters in the mainstream press. That mindset was a classic example of Hannah Arendt's term, the banality of evil. What was the it to which Albright was referring? Worth it. The it was regime change a U.S. foreign policy concept that has been at the center of U.S. national security state of the U.S. national security state ever since this governmental structure was brought into existence after the Second World War. U.S. officials decided that they wanted to get rid of Iraq's dictator, Saddam Hussein, whom, of course, the United States put in and replaced him with another U.S. stooge. But Saddam refused to budge. Thus, the purpose of the sanctions was threefold. One, to induce Saddam to resign, after which the deadly sanctions would be lifted. Two, induce the Iraqi people to rise up in a violent revolution against Saddam's government, which would produce more massive deaths. Or three, incite a coup in which Iraq's national security establishment assassinated or otherwise removed Saddam from power and replaced him with a U.S.-approved puppet. According to a review at National Catholic Report at National Catholic Reporter of Joy Gordon's excellent 2012 book Invisible War: The United States and the Iraq Sanctions, quote, UNICEF documented the deaths of 500,000 children under 5 from dysentery and malnutrition. Joy Gordon says the latest figure is now up to 880,000. All three U.S. administrations, Bush, Clinton, and W. Bush, whenever challenged on their responsibility for an epidemic or a famine, simply blamed Saddam Hussein. Writes Hornberger, how could they blame Saddam Hussein? They said that all he had to do was stop the killings of the Iraqi children and resign. That would stop. I'm sorry, I'm misreading. They said that all he had to do to stop the killings of the Iraqi children was resigned. U.S. officials made it clear that once he resigned, they would lift their deadly sanctions, and therefore no more Iraqi children would have to die. Therefore, in their twisted and perverted logic, they said it was Saddam, not U.S. officials, who were imposing and enforcing the sanctions, who was actually responsible for the deaths caused by the sanctions. In other words, he was hiding behind innocent women and children as the United States engaged in a program to try to starve them to death. A 2003 article entitled Sanctioned Genocide stated, quote, 
The UN humanitarian humanitarian reports on the blockade's effects on Iraqi children tell a grisly tale. In December 1995, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization reported 576,000 Iraqi children had died as a direct consequence of economic sanctions. In March 1996, a World Health Organization study released that the blockade release found that the blockade had caused a six-fold increase in the mortality rate of Iraqi children under age five. UNICEF reported in October 1996 that 4,500 Iraqi children under five were dying every month as a result of sanctioned sanctions-induced starvation and disease. Two high UN officials, Dennis Halliday and Hans von Sponeck, resigned their posts because they did not want to be part of what they labeled genocide. In a 2021 interview, Halliday stated, quote, this completely undermined the water treatment and distribution system of Iraq, which depended on electricity to drive it. And it drove people to use contaminated water from the Tigris and the Euphrates. That was the beginning of the death knell for young children because mothers were not breastfeeding. They were feeding their children with child formula, but mixing it with foul water from the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. In addition, these conflicts introduced a new weapon called depleted uranium, which was used by the U.S. forces driving the Iraqi army out of Kuwait. That was used again in southern Iraq in the Basra area and led to massive accumulation of nuclear debris, which led to leukemia in children, which took three, four or five years to become evident. When I got to Iraq in 1998, the hospitals in Baghdad and also, of course, in Basra and other cities were full of children suffering from leukemia. Those children, we reckon perhaps 200,000 children, died of leukemia. At the same time, Washington and London withheld some of the medicines and treatment components that leukemia requires. Again, it seemed in a genocidal manner, denying Iraqi children the right to remain alive writes Hornberger, it's worth mentioning that prior to the U.S. killing of Iraqi children as a way to get regime change in Iraq, Saddam Hussein had been a partner and ally of the U.S. national security state during the 1980s. That was when U.S. officials were helping Iraqi forces to kill Iranian citizens in Iraq's war of aggression against that country. And he has articles that he has written all about that. Of course, Iran is pertinent to this discussion because while U.S. officials no longer target the people of Iraq with deadly sanctions. They continue to target people in other nations, including children with death by sanctions. Iran, along with Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, Russia, China, and other targets of regime change come to mind, with nary a concern expressed by most U.S. mainstream commentators. Amazing. With that in mind, let's think about sanctions. Let's talk about sanctions imposed against you by the federal government. This is a piece that I don't believe has been released at MRC TV yet. Let me it's about the upcoming Joe Biden Xi Jinping Jinping meeting, which doesn't have a date yet. They don't have a, a set date. It's a blind date. It's going to be a lot of fun. So let's get into it. 
Pop media are buzzing about the undated but upcoming meeting between Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping this month, telegraphing to American and Chinese citizens a number of important off-hidden points about economics and freedom, foremost among which is the dark reality that a meeting of two human beings can affect billions of people who, in a moral world, ought to be free of such tyrannical influence. Preceded by strange antagonistic signals from the Bidenistas and even former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi about the official U.S. positions on Taiwan, Hong Kong, the expansion of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization into the Pacific, and even odd tales of spy balloons, the most fundamental and perennial issue facing Biden, G, and virtually every U.S. and Chinese head of state for decades has been and still is the matter of the trade barriers known as tariffs. Just the term trade barrier ought to tell anyone resistance to normally normalcy bias that there's a problem. Trade is voluntary. It's agreed to by all parties involved. By definition, it is an exchange. And also by definition, barriers to trade infringe on freedom. They represent threats by some people against other people who want to be left alone. As a result, anyone who would like to treat his or her neighbor fairly and in peace should oppose barriers to trade, be they barriers imposed by a schoolyard bully on kids trading baseball cards or barriers imposed by government bullies over other things, including products and services. Sadly, many American politicians attempt to entice the populace into embracing this immoral trade barrier idea by telling the people that tariffs will, quote, help, end quote, the native national economy. But of course, even on that practical level, the exact opposite is true. Biden has, in essence, continued a series of destructive Trump tariffs slash import taxes that the Donald wrapped in the cloak of America first in early 2018. And under that sad, improper banner, U.S. consumers have paid a lot more in import taxes to the U.S. government, preventing them from saving and reinvesting and preventing new opportunities for new U.S. jobs to start. After 16 years of good of a good leaving alone, the Trump administration in 2017 resurrected Section 201 of the 1974 Trade Act to, quote, investigate the too low prices of foreign-made dishwashers, washing machines, and solar cells. Then, after expression that that artificial concern of that artificial concern, after expressing that artificial concern and promoting said concern to special constituencies in Ohio, South Carolina, and Tennessee, where the bulk of U.S.-made dishwashers and washing machines are manufactured, lo and behold, American consumers, yep, they saw this. They might want the freedom to buy less expensive washing machines and solar cells so that they could have money left over and invest or spend all that money on other things. Well, they weren't part of the calculus. They never are when politicians cater to special interests. Thus, the U.S. in January of 2018 
imposed a massive tariff of between 30 and 50% on the above-mentioned products, a trade barrier that added to consumer burdens and soon was recognized as economic poison. Regardless, the White House in March of that year imposed a 25% tariff on imported steel and a 10% tariff on imported aluminum from every nation except Mexico and Canada. And cumulatively, federal import taxes on Chinese goods soon rose to cost U.S. consumers $50 billion a year, eventually bleeding $123 billion out of consumer pockets by the time Biden took over. Ah, Mr. Trump, so great. Of course, it was not as if Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden were not warned. When Trump first pushed the added costs onto us, Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska, observed, quote, we're on the verge of a painful and stupid trade war, and that's bad. This isn't just bad for farmers and ranchers in Nebraska who need to buy a new tractor. It's also bad for the moms and dads who will lose their manufacturing jobs because fewer people can buy a more expensive product, end quote. Years of federal vampirism followed, and much, of the chag- and much to the chagrin of many economists, consumers, and U.S. manufacturers who actually rely on Chinese goods to make their own products and who have to pass along a certain percentage of their government-imposed expenses to us, the Biden administration didn't remove the tariffs. The policy has been a disaster. As Stuart Anderson noted for Forbes in May of 2021, quote, the Congressional Budget Office has calculated the Trump tariffs cost the average U.S. household more than $1,200 a year. Since Biden has continued the tariffs, at some point, they will be called the Biden tariffs, and the cost to U.S. households will be similar, end quote. Anderson even observed that some well-known left-leaning politicians were sounding the alarm, quote, on trade, Biden has voluntarily extended key Trump protectionist policies, including tariffs on metal imports and an effort to undermine the World Trade Organization's appellate process, writes Zach Beauchamp of Vox. He even added to some of them, signing an executive order tightening Buy American rules for the federal government and imposing tax incentives for ordinary Americans to purchase American-made electric cars. That's Trump. And two weeks later, end quote, and two weeks later, Anderson cited just-released research from Mary Amidi, an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Sang Hoon Kong, and David Weinstein, economists at Columbia University, that offered a picture of the economic acid those tariffs have become. And he offered another, they offered another general long-term lesson about the idea of tariffs, citing among many quotes this from Weinstein. Quote, the tariffs protect the least efficient firms and reduce their incentives to innovate while hurting the most successful U.S. firms, inducing their ability, reducing, reducing their ability to innovate. Sorry, I'm reading terribly here. End quote. So again, the tariffs protected the least efficient firms and reduced their incentives to innovate while hurting the most successful U.S. firms, reducing their ability to innovate. End quote. 
Now, as Biden and Xi prepare to meet, American consumers can wonder whether any of the tariff pressure on their wallets will be reduced, and they can remember key points when it comes to tariffs. First, politicians usually impose tariffs to give artificial benefits to politically favored special interests at the expense of competitors and consumers. Again, you know, since it's just my voice, I want to stress this. Politicians usually impose tariffs to give artificial benefits to politically favored special interests at the expense of competitors and consumers. In economics classes, we apply the term rent-seeking to that behavior. It's always the situation when those politically connected forces get policy favors at the expense of captive consumers. Second, This kind of favoritism does not help consumers in the aggregate. As James Bovard observed in his groundbreaking book, The Fair Trade Fraud, protectionist tariffs generally harmed the aggregated consumer pocketbook eight times as much as they help, in quotes, the special interests being protected against foreign competition. That's a lot of money, and it could be used to help new, vibrant businesses grow rather than seeing the government get taxes and stodgy, uncompetitive, politically favored industries get business they normally would not receive. Third, tariffs often are preceded by rhetoric about so-called trade deficits. But economists know that inherent in the term trade is what belies the popular misconception of the so-called deficit. Because when people trade, there is no deficit. They exchange voluntarily, giving up what they have for something they want more. They benefit relative to their earlier state. That's why they engage in the exchange. Not only is there never a deficit in a normative trade, on the international front, when those individual trades are aggregated, there never is a deficit. Hey everybody, we're going to be taking a quick break to hear from some of our fine sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to touch upon that idea of international trade and blow apart the myths about the so-called trade deficit. There's a lot more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction, and its features ensure Dash is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible, and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. <laughs> Free Talk Live. 
We return with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, and thanks for listening. We continue now with our conversation about how politicians try to use fear of a so-called trade deficit to gain more political control. In fact, trade means there never is a deficit. Now we look at the international front. Tariffs often are preceded by rhetoric about so-called trade deficits. But economists know that inherent in the term trade is what belies the popular misconception of the so-called deficit. Because when people trade, there is no deficit. They exchange voluntarily, giving up what they have for something they want more. They benefit relative to their earlier state. That's why they engage in the exchange. Not only is there never a deficit in a normative trade, on the international front, when those individual trades are aggregated, there never is a deficit. As Herbert Stein noted on page 511 in the Fortune Encyclopedia of Economics, edited by David Henderson, the term trade deficit also is a misnomer on an international level. The term we use to look more completely, we in economics use to look more completely at international exchange, is balance of payments. And as the term implies, the payments always maintain balance. Essentially, reporters who claim there was an X-level trade deficit for a period of time focus solely on goods and services, known as the current account. This so-called imbalance usually occurs when one national currency is strong compared to others. Thus, seeing this then sees native consumers, including manufacturers, who need foreign products to make their products, taking advantage of that strong buying power and, of course, buying lots of foreign stuff. It's one of the reasons Americans take advantage of foreign vacations when the dollar is relatively strong compared to that foreign currency in the nation where they might be traveling. They can get more for their money if they go at that time. The current account is what we typically are told is in deficit because those foreign nations aren't buying as much American-made stuff and services. Of course not. Their money isn't worth as much. You can't buy as much. But there's the other half of the balance of trade, the half that pop media and politicians usually overlook. That is the capital account. The capital account is the term applied to financial instruments, i.e. liquidity. U.S. dollars spent on foreign goods don't morph into foreign currency. They remain U.S. dollars. And if the U.S. economy is going strong, if productivity is high, that strong U.S. dollar has a lot of productive leverage on which to move. As a result, those dollars that U.S. consumers spend on foreign goods are used by the foreign recipients to invest in U.S. ventures. Here, they are offered back to U.S. businesses and startups as investment capital. In fact, as Stein notes, quote, because the current account and the capital account add up to the total account, which is necessarily balanced, a deficit in the current account is always accompanied by an equal surplus in the capital account and vice versa, end quote. 
Most national level politicians know this, but they insist on playing populist hero even as they harm the populace with their government imposed tariffs. Such tariffs are immoral and backwards. They tend to inspire reciprocal tariffs from foreign nations, and they should be relegated to the proverbial dustbin of history. The question remains, as Biden and Xi prepare to meet, will they change their disastrous policies and let us be relatively freer people, thus helping the U.S. and Chinese economies in the process? That should probably be out tomorrow at MRC-TV, and I hope you find it worthwhile. Uh, I thought it was a fairly important piece. Let's check in with Rockfin Chat. And of course, I know some people say, well, they're dumping. Their death. That just means that stuff's getting sold at a low price. You know, that's just rhetoric. It's just mindless rhetoric. It doesn't mean anything. Well, they're using slave labor. They're using prison labor. Well, then don't buy it. Find out. It's a, that, that inspires the market to actually show whether it's something is coming from China and get it from someplace else. It's up to you. It's not up to the government to tell your neighbor that he or she can't buy something. That's not the government's place. And even if that stuff could be confirmed as coming from slave labor, you're enslaving someone else domestically to pay for the police force that would block someone from buying the product of that slave labor. So you yourself are engaging in slave labor by employing the power of the state to enslave somebody to pay for the police to block that product or to punish someone for buying something that was made with slave labor elsewhere or whatever, right? There is no moral argument for the existence of the polis. It is impossible to morally argue for it. It's just not possible because the, the, the state requires aggression and aggression is immoral, not defensive violence, aggression. Rockfin chat. Let's see what's happening. Everybody going to close up with a big story that I want to make sure I cover for you, and it has to do with your gun rights. So let's get rocking and rolling with You Know That Theme. We're going to hit it as I'm on the screen. Go for one and all with the wonderful strains of Mission of Burma coming to us from Boston. You might have seen this on my MRC TV page. SCOTUS showdown, 18 states back NRA speech gun case against New York. Okay, now this is a pretty big deal. This has a lot of nuances, and some of that I did not get to mention in this piece for MRC TV. It's been excised, but it's very important. The Supreme Court, November 3rd placed onto its docket the case of National Rifle Association v. Vulo. And David Knight talked about this today. Uh, I wrote this on Sunday, but it only came out, I think it was uh, today, November 7th. Uh, So it was a slow-moving challenge to action taken by a New York State bureaucrat that, according to the NRA, infringed on the group's ability to speak and engage in financial activity in New York. According to NRA filings, In 2018, then New York Department of Financial Services Superintendent Maria Vulo intimidated financial institutions to distance themselves from the NRA, 
even as the government claimed that its messages to those financial institutions were part of its so-called regulatory role. So it's sending out certain messages. What are those messages? They seem kind of intimidating to the uh, NRA. What's it all about, Alfie? Here's some more, my friends. Whether that's a claim to be able to regulate people's interest in supporting the right to keep and bear arms or regulate the financial institutions makes no moral difference. So let's just go back again. They said Maria Vulo claimed that her Department of New York's Financial Services the superintendent of it, Maria Bulo, said that it was part of their regulatory role. Regulating what? Radi- re- regulating financial institutions or regulating keeping and bear arms? They don't have any right to do so, and they don't have any right to do so. Interestingly enough, no constitutional power, that's prohibited. And the financial institutions, one, they have no moral right to so-called regulate. And, of course, if they interfere in already existing contract, then the federal contract clause comes into play, and that would be blocked as well. Anytime a state comes in and tells people with prior existing contracts that the state is going to put on new stipulations about how that contract can be fulfilled, that is a breach of the contract clause of the U.S. Constitution. Therefore, the majority of things like minimum wage laws on state levels Uh, regulations on state levels, licensing on state levels, all those types of things. If they interfere with people who already have made agreements, they'd be unconstitutional if people actually paid attention to the U.S. Constitution, but they don't. So we write here, when viewed outside that fundamental moral sphere, even when viewed outside that sphere, in the day-to-day practical realm of claimed powers under the state and federal constitution, and what is not allowed by the U.S. and New York constitutions, the New York state claim to be able to so-called regulate financial institutions and then issue so-called messages to those institutions about organizations that are legally operating, but which the state doesn't like, well, that looks a lot like intimidation. As Jack Davis reports for Western Journal, quote, in the court papers, the NRA said Vulo, Maria Vulo of the state of New York, warned regulated institutions that doing business with Second Amendment advocacy groups posed reputational risk of concern to the Department of Financial Services of New York. Hmm. The NRA also said Vulo would not punish banks and insurers for past infractions if they distanced themselves from the NRA while touting penalties against those who did not dump the NRA in their financial transactions. Things like loans, things like, you know, getting checks out to their employees, that sort of stuff. I said, this sounds kind of like a mafia. The result, according to the NRA court filing, was that, quote, numerous financial institutions perceived Vulo's actions as threatening and therefore ceased business arrangements with the NRA or refused new ones. Curiously, in September of 2022, the Second Federal Circuit Court of Appeals sided with New York's Vulo, thus forcing the NRA to appeal to the Supreme Court. With the move, 18 state attorneys general have filed a brief in support of the NRA. Davis of Western Journal notes that in the brief, 
the attorneys general write, quote, the Second Circuit's decision gives government officials license to financially cripple their political opponents, to otherwise stifle their protected speech, whether those rivals advocate for school choice, abortion rights, religious, so-called abortion rights, of religious liberty, environmental protections, or any other politically salient issue. End quote. That comes from those 18 states AGs who all signed on to that. And this that was a brief to try to get this up to the Supreme Court. They supported it going to the Supreme Court, those 18 AGs. And I wrote, being able to do that is a major problem. But it always is a problem with any form of so-called government regulator claiming power over peaceful civilian activity. And this ties into our tariffs. Because the same sort of thing, folks, I just want to mention this again, and I, I know I brought it up before, the same sort of thing that Madeleine Albright found was no problem in putting up economic blockades against those innocent women and children in Iraq for all that time is being done to varying degrees against you through tariffs and regulations and licensing. They're doing similar things. They're blocking you from getting the, getting the services that you could get from that person. He doesn't have a license. Getting services from that person and that person's business because they're located in Canada. They're located in Mexico. You've got to raise the price. They're hurting all of us. They're doing it on a, the similar moral level. It's just to a greater degree and backed up by government warships off the coast in the Gulf, by government bases in Iraq, let's say now, whatever it might be that they want to block around Iran with all those U.S. bases and, of course, imposing their embargo on Iran, their embargo on Russia, taking the valuable things from the so-called Russian oligarchs as they impose so-called sanctions on them. They're all acts of aggression. They are in a state of war against you. John Locke would have described it as such, but that is the way the state always is. The state always is in a perpetual state of war against you, threatened aggression, and if you step out of line, you'll see what happens. You must conform or the war becomes manifest. And in many cases, it is manifest because people don't resist. When the government says you got to get licensed, they block the competition. The people who are being blocked, if they try to resist, maybe they get arrested. Other people won't try. They'll stay, they'll stay low. Maybe it goes into black market. Maybe it doesn't. But these are all forms of aggression. Tariffs, licensing, regulations, new impositions, all these sorts of things. And now we go back to New York and these threats. I think they've got a pretty valid argument here. Now, it might prove that the evidence of the case doesn't prove the NRA argument, but I can definitely see this as something that the government of New York would do, especially at the time that this is uh, alleged to have occurred under Andrew Cuomo. I think Holkel will do the same sort of thing. I said, in theory, the U.S. Constitution and the New York State Constitution are supposed to limit the kinds of activity in which all forms of government can engage. But generation upon generation have suffered at the hands of government officials who don't pay attention to those so-called barriers. It's curious that less than half of the attorneys general for the 50 states have joined in support of the NRA. 
Davis reports that those participating to help the gun association get heard by the Supreme Court to bring this case to the Supreme Court. Their AGs from Montana, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, North, uh, South Dakota, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming. So you can keep those in mind if you're in any of those states, everybody. Okay. If you heard one, that's yours. Good on you for that, at least. But I said, but what of the others? Can they not see that the state intimidation stifles speech shoe could be on the other foot someday? Can they not see that hypothetically one of their preferred left-leaning groups might someday see a more right-leaning government in their state capital, one which could pull what appears to have been done by Vulo in New York while Andrew Cuomo was governor? Perhaps they don't care. Because for many political operatives, the principle is not important. The various constitutions are not important. What is important is power, getting it, keeping it, and expanding it. Which means that many of them probably like the idea that if they can get into power, they can intimidate their opponents through threats of increased regulation and hand favors to those businesses that comply. Just like a New York mob tale, this seems to be about kissing the ring. Of course, as J.R.R. Tolkien warned in his Lord of the Rings trilogy, the ring of power is corruptive and ought to be shunned and destroyed. The National Rifle Association v. Volo case is expected to be heard early next year. Meanwhile, this New York government will continue to shower tax cash on lawyers as they massage the legal problem they appear to have created in their zeal to virtual signal, virtue signal on weapons. And by the way, that would be the state of New York, which hosts numerous weapons contractors and which will continue to benefit financially from having those weapons makers located there. Sure is nice to see how consistent the New York government is in its opposition to the spread of arms. And if you hit, hit the, the hyperlinks, you'll see the list, defense contractor by state. You can go to New York, just go down here, and it is unbelievable the amount of money that they make per annum from defense contractors. Check it out. Look at this. Dollar amount of defense contracts awarded to contractors in this state from 2000 to 2020, 139 billion, 530 million, 994,967. New York. That's how much the government of New York hates arms. But of course, they don't want people to speak out about it. They don't want people to spread the messages about their hypocrisy. Let's close things off with this breaking story, which we will discuss in more detail tomorrow. Thanks to Michael Schellenberger and Alex Gutentag, Alex being a woman. FBI and DHS directors mislead Congress about censorship. Over the last year, mainstream news reporters have dismissed every new revelation of government censorship. Federal Bureau of, of Investigation officials who primed social media executives to censor the Hunter Biden laptop 
were simply on guard for Russian disinformation, they said. White House officials who demanded that Facebook censor accurate information about Cowabunga 19 so-called vaccine side effects were simply trying to save lives, journalists argued. And the sweeping effort by the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, to demand alongside academic institutes social media censorship of COVID and election information was a, quote, public-private partnership to counter misinformation, many reporters insisted. But many independent journalists disagree. We and others have documented how these efforts blatantly violate the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, which explicitly prohibits the government from abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. The FBI had Hunter Biden's laptop in its possession since 2019, but primed social media executives in the summer of 2020 to view it instead as Russian disinformation, resulting in its censorship. White House officials also demanded that social media companies censor accurate information about the side effects of the COVID so-called vaccine. Facebook complied, fearing retaliation from the White House, even though executives knew that doing so would increase, not decrease, so-called vaccine hesitancy. Emails obtained through discovery in the Missouri v. Biden case revealed how officials from the federal government threatened, berated, and pressured social media companies. In light of this evidence, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals partially upheld an injunction in the Missouri v. Biden case, ruling that some government agencies had coerced platforms into censoring protected speech. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals viewed the sweeping public-private effort, otherwise known as fascism, overseen by DHS's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, to censor favored views on vaccines and elections, well, they viewed it to be in violation of the First Amendment. The court demanded that CISA, along with the FBI, CDC, and the White House, refrain from coercing or significantly encouraging social media companies to censor users. After this sequence of events, many rightly wondered how the heads of the various government agencies within the censorship industrial complex would respond to public questioning by members of Congress. After months of anticipation, this finally occurred this week when Senator Rand Paul interrogated DHS Secretary Terry Alejandro Mayorkas and FBI Director Christopher Wray. Senator Ted Cruz similarly grilled National Science Foundation Director Dr. Seth Roman Panchanathan earlier this month on that agency's distribution of millions of dollars to promote the, quote, science of countering social media myths and disinformation, as well as the development of digital tools to track and censor so-called misinformation. The way they get away with this stuff. With the censorship industrial complex increasingly under scrutiny, America's leading thought police turned evasive, misleading Congress about their involvement in censorship. Why are they no longer defending the actions they once said were necessary for safety, public health, and national security? There's more. Facing difficult questions, Americans thought police, America's thought police are now trying to deny their well-documented role in censorship. After Senator Paul asked if DHS had held meetings with social media companies to discuss content moderation, 
Mayorkas answered, quote, we, along with other federal agencies, have met with social media companies in a public-private partnership to speak of the threats to the homeland so that those companies are alert to them. We're going to more. Of course, that's a paid piece, but I can now turn to this from Jim Jordan. Bombshell report on the censorship industrial complex. Thanks for being a conspirator for freedom. There's more to come of Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Eleutheromania, the insatiable desire for freedom. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. And I, I almost brought this up yesterday, but it was just so harsh. It's so, so sad. It's so ridiculous and angering that I, I decided not to put it in. But today I thought, you know what? I've got this other story about California. That one is so ridiculously stupid and frivolous that this one, we can put this in. It gives us an unbelievable message. And it just makes you think, you know, what can you do to help someone all I'm going to say here is you'll see the headline. So let me bring it up a little bit larger on the screen here so you can see this. Teenage female hockey player, that's, you know, field hockey, loses teeth after being hit by shot from male opponent. It was field hockey. It was a trans so-called gender guy playing in a Massachusetts, I think it was the Swampscott team against Dayton Rehoboth. You can see down there on the screen. This one actually got coverage in the Telegraph all the way over in the UK. Of course, with the internet, it could have been next door. Uh, But the guy, you're not supposed to hit the field hockey ball like up in the air. You're supposed to try to keep it on the ground. Uh, The guy smashed that field hockey ball so hard that even with their mouth protection, This, all I'm going to say is there's video of this. It blew out all of her teeth, smashed her, basically destroyed the entire front area of her face. Explosion of of blood. I don't know what is going to happen for this girl. I mean, just unbelievable, unbelievable. So now they're reconsidering the, uh, the head of the athletics department is saying, oh, yeah, you know, we're we're going to reconsider now. Maybe that deserves a second look. And it's just it's just unbelievable. You know, how many times does dumb stuff like this have to happen? Now, it was was it accidental? Of course, it was accidental. Right. Did you hear the story about that? That uh, uh, that uh, pro skater, uh, I think it's a European skater who has been prone to doing this. uh this this trick where he raises his skates and gets people he cuts them or gets them in the in just below the neck around their collarbone but this time he went too high 
sliced the dude's throat. The guy, the guy bled to death just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's, it's just, it's unbelievable. And part of the problem here, of course, is that this is done through the government school systems. So they're always super touchy feely. Nobody can have exactly what they want because it's the tax system. And that doesn't mean that they should be forced to accept something that they don't want. Right. And you get this, I mean, just really, really sad, but it gets even crazier when we go to California I don't know what's going to happen with this young man pretending to be a woman slamming that thing so hard and hitting the girl in the face. Now, it's possible if a a girl had hit it, it would have been the same thing. I don't know. But it does bring light to the absurdity of having men who are typically physically stronger. They're faster. Their reflexes are faster. They're they're just dominant. They're athletically dominant. There's nothing you can do about that. There's that's, that's just the way it is. And this mixing of the guys and the girls, it's so crazy. It's so stupid. I guess it would be one thing if you had a pickup game. But when you have official policy and it's done through taxes, that mixes everybody's decision making process into it. You know, maybe the best thing I know it sounds I know it's 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 a eureka moment. It's very unique, and I've never thought of anything like this before. Maybe the best idea would be to stop charging all sorts of people for this and get the government out of education, in addition to getting government out of sports that are tied to education. Now, here's something that for a long time was seen as a government role. Education wasn't for about half of the country's history in the United States, and people were very well-educated and very literate, as Alexi de Tocqueville showed, as the sales of Common Sense by Thomas Paine showed. All sorts of people were absolutely devastatedly impressed by the fact that public education didn't exist in the United States, virtually speaking, except for some small enclaves in Massachusetts, and they kept pushing and pushing, and people just wouldn't do it. And um, you can just look at the Bullfinch study. Charles Bullfinch in Boston in the early 1800s was promoting the idea of having government-run schools. He had a survey, found out that 96% of the children up to sixth grade were educated privately, and people just didn't want government-run schools. They wanted their own church-run or home-based schooling. Wouldn't it be nice to get back to that, huh? And stop all this arguing and stop craziness like this. But something that is seen as a typical government function is to supposedly catch the bad guys, right? We know about catching the bad guys. That's why the police are the good guys when they point the guns at you and say, pay for us, we're protecting you. Wait, should I, maybe I should start the show again. And go backwards. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is the Pro Status Show. As you all know, government is definitely a valid thing. It's there to protect you. All right, thanks for watching. Enjoy. You, you chose it. Sure you did. Absolutely. It's a contract. You remember signing that contract, don't you? Yeah, I don't know. I think I smell my brains burning. All right. Now, one thing that they often say is a government function is to catch the bad guys and put them in prison. Well, California is having a weird time with its prisoners. California spent $4 million on gender affirming enhancements for prisoners. Let me enlarge this for you. No pun intended. 
Yeah, here it is. Tyler Durden, the team, and they go by that moniker. California is helping prison inmates cope with their stints. Having forked over, yeah, you got, if you read in the front, all you really need to do is read read that front line there, the front three lines, I should say, the front paragraph, because the key thing is the last bit of it, okay? Having forked over more than $4 million of taxpayer, fu- taxpayer funds on surgical sex changes and cosmetic gender-affirming enhancements for 157 inmates, get this, including four who are on death row. Now, I, I suppose I should have gone to the Washington Free Beacon for the original report and given them the publicity. But, uh, yeah, there you go. That's uh, that's great stuff. Dallas Rachel Goosen, Michaela Fennell, uh, Super Tasty Fennell, and Jazzy Paradise Scott ride bikes in the prison gym. Yeah. So, as they say, breaking it down, the state has coughed up over $4 million for certain kinds of plasties between the legs, $180,000 for breast implants, eat your heart out, Dolly Parton, $184,000 on facial feminization surgeries, $224,000 on laser hair removal and the state spent over $1 million removing the breasts of former prisoners. But remember, just please don't forget that this is helping the people on death row because there's nothing better than to know that people's tax money is first possibly going to kill an innocent person and second, putting people in prison who now on death row, if they are guilty of the crimes, can now demand these surgeries, even though sometime down the line, they're going to be killed by the state. You get to pay for all of it. All this moral ambiguity is just awesome, isn't it? Now, for those people who want to discuss the the so-called death penalty, I often tell people, I say, look, okay, um, I'll talk to uh, people who are, say, um, opposed to the death penalty. And I, too, am opposed to the death penalty because I'm opposed to the state. But I'll talk to non-anarchists, especially left-wing, big government anarchist people. I mean, big government left-wing people. As an anarchist, I'll speak to them. Just to make sure I frame that correctly for you as we light the campfire and settle in for a little story time here. Um, But I will, and I have done this in the past, I'll speak to big government left-wingers and I'll say, now, you you are opposed to the death penalty, right? And they'll say, absolutely, 100%. Good, good. Okay. Now, can you offer me your reasons? Typically, the reasons will be that they don't want the state to kill an innocent person. I'm with you, 100%. Okay, cool. They don't want to be implicated in putting to death someone who should not be put to death. Okay, I got it. So then I say, okay, so that also means that you are opposed to taxpayer-funded police right? And they look at me funny. And this has happened many times. And they say, what are you talking about? I was like, well, police can and will and have killed many, many times more innocent people 
then the death penalty ends up putting to death. And they say, well, that's comparing apples and oranges. And I was like, really? And they'll say, yeah, because, you know, the death penalty is after a deliberative process when you don't have to put those people to death. You could just put them in jail. You know, I was like, okay, well, we'll take away the wrongful imprisonment part of it because you could also have an opposition to that. You're, you know, putting your money into that. And we'll also take away the idea that you're forcing someone else to pay for something that they might not prefer for that prison system and the way you want it to operate. Okay. Life in prison, you think that's cool, you know? Okay. Now, some conservatives are like, they should cut down the number of appeals for death row that, you know, and then they'll say, well, it acts as a, as a uh, prophylactic. It acts as, a, as a, a threat to those people who might think about engaging in these types of crimes. If it enters their mind that they could be put, put to death, maybe they won't engage in these types of crimes. Maybe not. But we're not talking about the effect for so-called safety for the populace here. We're talking about the opposition, the protest that the left-winger gives, which is, I don't want the state to take an innocent life. And the answer is, well, if you oppose the death penalty and you also do not, and you do not oppose armed police that can and will kill people, regardless of whether they're defending themselves on the spot or not, the end is the same. You are sanctioning people to go out with weapons, supposedly to protect you, when in fact armed civilians do much more protection than police because police aren't on the scene when those conflicts occur, when the crimes happen. They you typically arrive afterwards. When seconds count, police are just minutes away or hours away in the case of Israel and many other cases. Um, so clearly, if they want to be consistent, if they don't want the state to take an innocent life on their dime, then they should also consistently oppose armed police and say, I want out of it. I don't want the police state. And that's what all states are. All states are police states, right? So I think that's worthwhile to mention. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Anything you want to comment, if you think, oh, guards off base, anything like that, uh, feel free to let me know what you think. Frederick Bastier's words ring true from the 19th century onwards. So let's head on into our next flash story, everybody. After we hit that California story, we brought up the long-term lesson, I hope, out of that about not just the prison system paying for all those different things that are in there, stuff that you might think is good and other people don't, stuff that you don't think is good that other people do, whatever it might be, whether it's the food or the books that they allow people to use, whether it's getting extra weights into the gym. All those things are arguments just like the school paradigms are arguments when things are collectivized. How many kids are going to be in each classroom? What time will they start? How many people will be in the cafeteria or the uh, workout area for the prisoners? How many prisoners will they have? When will they be able to visit? No one gets to really express what he prefers. So that's the way that it goes underneath the state, unfortunately. And I'd love to get your thoughts. Rockman chatters. So let's get on in into our next flash story. Wait a minute. 
got some breaking information about your automobile freedom. Yeah, there we go. There we go. I did it again. I know I'm so good at it. Let's head on over straight over to Thomas Massey and Daniel McAdams, everybody. Daniel McAdams tweeted out, this is exactly the high-tech equivalent of the Soviet internal passport. Your freedom of mobility, folks. We talked about what they've done with the truckers. They're trying to do this sort of thing with American drivers of cars. They want to control how long you can be on the roads, where you can be on the roads. They want to know where you're going on the roads. They want to be able to charge you by the mile and give you the carbon tax that they want to suck up from your lifeblood. And Daniel McAdams retweeted Thomas Massey here. Thomas writes, the right to travel is fundamental, but the government has mandated a kill switch in new vehicles sold after 2026. The kill switch, again, just that. That's all you need to know. It shouldn't matter what it is, whether it's uh, a kill switch or it's an airbag or it's a seatbelt or it's a cafe standard or it's anything. The kill switch will monitor driver performance and disable cars based on the information gathered. We will vote on my amendment to defund this mandate tonight. And there you go. So here's a little bit of what Thomas Massey had to say. Pursuant to House Resolution 838, the gentleman from Kentucky, Mr. Massey, and a member opposed each will control five minutes. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Kentucky. Mr. Chair, I rise in support of my amendment, which states none of the funds made available by this act may be used to implement Section 24220 of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. My amendment is simple. It will defund the federal mandate that requires all new vehicles after 2026 be equipped with a kill switch that can disable a vehicle if the vehicle has monitored the user's, the driver's performance and that the vehicle determines that the driver is not performing well. It's so incredible that I have to offer this amendment. It almost sounds like the domain of science fiction, dystopian science fiction, that the federal government would put a kill switch in vehicles that would be the judge, the jury, and the executioner on such a fundamental right as the right to travel freely. But here we are. It is, it is federal law that this is mandated, And so I am offering this amendment to defund this mandate. And with that, I reserve the balance of my time. Gentleman reserves, for what purpose does the gentleman from Illinois seek recognition? Mr. Chairman, I claim time in opposition. The gentleman is is recognized. Mr. Chairman, I yield one minute to the gentleman from Florida, the ranking member of the Military Construction and Veterans Affairs Subcommittee, Ms. Wasserman Schultz. The gentlewoman is recognized. Uh, I thank the gentleman for yielding. I... I actually need two minutes, if that's possible, Mr. Chairman. We'll do two minutes, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. The gentlewoman is recognized. <laughs> Thank you very much. Lobbying in mid uh, in, in mid mid sentence. Um, I rise in opposition to this amendment. Uh, let me be clear: this this the act that the gentleman is trying to defund does not require auto manufacturers to install kill switches. It does not do that. Passive drunk driving technology is a vital tool in safeguarding our loved ones and other innocent people on our roads. This new technology offers a lifeline of hope to not only save lives, but to prevent the lifelong emotional toll and gargantuan costs these accidents inflict on families. Deadly drunk 
Driving All accidents right, can echo across yes, generations. You know it. But we can seize this opportunity to stop she such has... tragedies. Between 29... There we go. Uh, she is playing with words. She's using different terminology. It is a kill switch. <laughs> and she's claiming, oh, it's just about drunk driving. No, it is for performance. Thomas Massey has it right. He's an engineer. He describes it properly. But even if it were about just monitoring for drunk driving, if they put something, if they mandate that a breathalyzer has to be put into a car, which some people actually have proposed, if they mandate that, that is immoral, unconstitutional, and fascistic. So what Debbie Wasserman Schultz is saying there is lying by another means. And Thomas Massey was correct. Unfortunately, Thomas Massey's amendment did not pass. So those drunk driving measuring things for your driving standards will be put into your cars. And regardless of whether you've been drinking or not, if the government mandated system says you're not driving the way they want you to drive, your car will shut down. Also, it will monitor and collect data and send it back to the government such that, of course, as we know, it will be incorporated into how much energy you're using down the line. We know that they were going to collect this data because, well, I think it's a good inference, because they want to collect it from truck drivers. They're already doing, essentially, as I mentioned last night, something similar to this to try to figure out how quickly truck drivers might be going between point A and point B and mandating that they can only be on the roads for a certain period of time before they have to take breaks. So because they're mandating that the truck drivers can only be on the road for a certain amount of time before they take breaks, what does that incentivize the truck drivers to do to cover more ground? Go faster, right? Which makes it riskier in some cases beyond a certain level of speed, right? Absolutely. It depends what you're hauling and so on and so forth. And so the government impediments in all these areas, because they claim they run the roads, because they claim they can regulate the energy system that we all use, that they regulate the automobile industry, play favors with some and punish others because they claim all these things completely contrary to their constitution. But the constitution itself is an impediment imposed on us. But he, and so even if it were in the Constitution, it would not be moral, but it's not in the Constitution. They use an open-ended interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause to get away with this. They say, well, cars go over state borders so we can regulate them. Uh, as I've mentioned, James Madison said that the Interstate Commerce Clause was supposed to be state-on-state -state predation and frustration when states imposed essentially trade barriers against other states as capital S states, entities, corporate entities. It wasn't supposed to pertain to individuals or private market transactions. That wasn't it. If there was a problem that popped up between states and states are imposing tariffs on each other, as Madison said, as a remedial, not a preemptive measure, they could go to the Congress for some sort of remedy. There's plenty more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live coming up. 
the new fourth edition of Healing Our World, The Compassion of Libertarianism will take your understanding of liberty to a deeper level and has over 1,300 updated references, new cartoons, and a forward by Dr. Ron Paul. With discounts for multiple book purchases, the fourth edition of Healing Our World is a great gift for the liberals, pragmatists, environmentalists, and Christians in your life who think libertarianism is cold-hearted. Get yours today at healing.freetalklive.com and use promo code FTL for a $5 discount. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction. And its features ensure Dash is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% of attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete. So it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO. Big thanks to them for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash Dash.org. So if you express different views, you'll get silenced. If you want to try to create software and they find out about it and they want to investigate what you're making, they'll come after you. It's amazing. I mean, just whether or not they do it is is. Really, that's just the practical outcome. It's the audacity of these people to do this. You know, it's their amazing hypocrisy that, as David Knight says, you know, they want to know everything about you, but they won't tell you anything about them. They keep everything secret, to paraphrase David. And of course, hey, it, it pertains even to the, uh, the hypocrisy of them on the battlefield, on the war, so-called, right? Let's go to a little theme about that right now, everybody. Let's hear from our friends time zone Thank you, Time Zone. Let's get right into it, everybody. We've got a lot to discuss on this. And for the first part, you're not going to like the image of this, but let's look at it. It comes to us via Twitter in context. Despite Israeli officials telling Gazans to evacuate to the south of Gaza, we played that video. We talked about how fatuous it was. We talked about how they were bombing that area. And yet they were telling people, you got to go to the south, go to the south. Well, guess what? Here's some footage from the area where they're telling Gazans, the Palestinian civilians, to go as they carpet bomb more of that five mile by 25 mile area. Despite Israeli officials telling Gazans to evacuate to the south of Gaza, Israeli forces launched deadly air raids in the southern city of Khan Yunus. The air raids destroyed several homes and two mosques. 
the number of deaths is still unclear. But there is an estimate now, and you wouldn't believe the stuff that I'm hearing from conservative talk radio, where they're claiming, oh, this is this is the same sort of thing. We see this all the time. Our enemies, our enemies, these Islamic crazies out there, they claim war crimes and they try to stop us from defending ourselves. Uh, how is Israel carpet bombing thousands of civilians anything close to American defense? How is that at all moral? Let's go to antiwar.com. The White House actually acknowledged it, even as, yep, we've noted it. They continue, as Max Blumenthal noted, they're going to continue to do this. We saw the footage of Max at the White House yesterday, as he said, rather than political rhetoric, uh, why don't you, you know, is there, is there, we've heard political rhetoric about this, uh, and the guy just offers political rhetoric as an answer. What are you doing to try to you know, tell the Israelis to lay off. Well, you know, we have a system in place, just more political rhetoric. And here it is. Now the White House acknowledged yesterday that the U.S. backed on Monday, actually, that the U.S. backed Israeli onslaught on on Gaza has killed many, many thousands of innocent people as the Biden administration continues unconditional support for Israel's war. Yep. John Kirby acknowledged it. The Gaza's Health Ministry said on Tuesday that at least 10,328 Palestinians, and you hear in talk radio, they're saying, oh, yeah, well, they're, 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 oh, they're inflating it. It's thousands, but it's not that many thousands. <laughs> Do you hear what you're saying? I literally was listening to Howie Carr show, and they had a guy call in, and Howie's like, oh, yeah, it's inflated. I'm like, Howie, come on. Seriously? We're talking 10,000. 1,328 Palestinians, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, even if that's inflated. How about no, zero, that connect us to anything? How about that? They've been killed, including 4,237 children. And by the way, this estimate, I think this is reliable. Thousands more are missing and presumed to be under the rubble. The Biden administration has cast doubt on the numbers coming from Gaza's health ministry. And you're hearing conservatives believe the Biden administration. I mean, talk about being picking and choosing your reality. Just absolutely crazy, crazy stuff. In the meantime, they have a vote to censure Rashida Tlaib. As you see right here from Vaccine Impact, First Amendment rights survive Republican Zionists' effort to censor free speech in Congress as rhetoric of hate and murder among the right intensifies. Yes, they tried to vote to censure Rashida Tlaib, and conservatives are like, oh, did you hear the people defending her? They were so shrill. They're talking about how there needs to be a ceasefire. To, the Palestinians need to be saved. They need to have their own homes. Like, how how is that sh- bad? Like, I don't understand. How is that bad? How is that going to stop the existence of Israel? I just don't understand where that calculus comes in. I'm using abductive reasoning, and it's not getting me anywhere here, right? Now, I want to play for you some great coverage of this and some of the votes and the support of people like Thomas Massey and so on who spoke up about this, contrary to what the rhinos, and yes, they use the term Zionist here in Vaccine Impact. Many of them are Zionists. They are very much Zionists. That doesn't mean that by criticizing them, I'm anti-Semitic. And as I've noted, as you know, the Semitic peoples include the Jews, include the Palestinians. And as I said, the Canaanites would have 
been considered uh, Semites as well, right? So let's turn to Ron Paul and Daniel McAdams to hear their excellent coverage of this. Of course, they have that inner workings knowledge of the way things happen on the floor. And they were just, they were disgusted by what was done to Rashida Tlaib. And they mentioned, we probably don't agree with her on 99.99% of things, but look at what they are doing here. And in accusing her of misleading people, they actually mislead people about what she said and about what's been happening there. It's an, it's an incredible double bluff that they're doing. It's absolutely despicable. Yeah, yeah. Well, the second story we want to cover today is, I think, also outrageous. Um, and this is from Politico. Put that next one up. House moves to censure Tlaib over is Israel rhetoric. So the U.S. House, of course, they can't get off the rear ends and pass the appropriations bills and keep us keep things running because they're too busy spending hours on the floor yelling at this representative from Michigan, I believe. Um, go to the next one. So this is a GOP measure. The House late Tuesday, so late yesterday, passed a GOP measure to formally reprimand Representative Rashida, Rashida Tlaib over her outspoken criticism of Israel. Uh, Representative Rich McCormick, Republican of Georgia, had moved to censure Tlaib for what he called, quote, promoting false narratives. And this reminds me a lot of what was happening during COVID, if you remember. Yeah. You were kicked off of YouTube for promoting false narratives about ivermectin, false narratives about masks. So this is ironically the same Republicans who probably were on our side on this, but they happen to not like this woman. I don't know much about her. My guess is that you and I would probably agree with maybe 0.001% of her political views. However, voting to censure her, to reprimand her for saying things that she believes to be true, I think it's outrageous. You know, we have a First Amendment, and most people recognize it, but they get confused on how property can limit saying dumb things. You don't have a right to go into a church and uh, and, and, and take over. Yeah. You know, it's right about free speech. That would be idiotic. Yeah. So there's a First Amendment principle there. And, but we talk a lot about uh, speech. Now, they've given some uh, special coverage for people in Congress, and some argue against it, some argue and understand it, but that's the way it's been. If I had gone to the floor and made a couple charges and said, ABC, the way I understand that, they can't sue me. They can't arrest me. They can't do anything. So it's almost a special privilege for saying what you want. Unless they don't like what you're saying. Yeah, so here it is. Here. So they, they have this, and I think it fits into the stuff that, that, uh, you know, freedom of speech now is uh, enforced, uh, uh, you know, with a collusion of big business and social media, and they're able to control speech and uh, punish you because they have the power and the tool of economic policy, and they can really ruin people. So when they cancel you, some people, unfortunately, got canceled and never recovered. We hear about the big cases. Yeah. Well, I bet there's been a lot of people from hospital staffs, sure. and, uh, you know, uh, even before before any of this whole thing started, I remember people getting into trouble because that was one of the questions that they were starting to ask in the 60s, uh, what's your position uh, on abortion? Uh-huh. Because uh, they were doing them and they said, would you participate? And, and they could lose their job if you said no. Yeah. Uh, but now it's much different and much bigger and much more economic. It has to do with speaking. So this it's rather ironic. 
yeah. for me to look at this and say, you know, you know Taleb, Taleb wise has to be punished, yeah. punished for this. And but we had some, uh, we we looked up uh, the people who supported what we think is the right position yeah. and that you shouldn't be bothered by this. I mean, uh, you let somebody else get up and say something, but this whole thing of censor, yeah. uh, it, it, as if they were godlike and they knew that they knew the, the moral high ground. We're in a position where we can censor people for saying immoral things, but that's what they think they are. But <clears throat> we'll mention the four names uh-huh. that, uh, that that voted against it, and we know just like you said originally, there's probably not many things we'd agree with that's yeah, going on. With her, yeah. But Ken Buck, I've heard that name, and I think of him as a good person. Yeah. I don't know John Duarte of California, but he voted right, and we've heard of this guy Thomas Massey. Yeah. Yeah, his name keeps popping up, you exactly. know. So we expected, but I was very pleased, and not too totally surprised that Tom McClintock of yeah. California yeah. he did, he deserves to be congratulated from this because he is very very good on his votes but he's also uh you know doesn't vote 100 percent with thomas yeah but he, he's a good person and i i always uh, i'm always very pleased with that because I, I i made an effort in a token way to help him to get into congress yeah yeah, yeah no that was a nice surprise so those were the four republicans who voted no uh and, and my guess is certainly with massey it was a free speech issue but here's you, you mentioned the word irony the biggest irony, now I did, a, I did a dive into the bill. It's not that long of a resolution. I did a dive into it. And the first thing that struck me, the big irony is, and if you put on that next clip, it's HRES 845, easy to look up, easy to read. Um, uh, go forward, there we go. HRES 845, censuring Representative Rashida Taleb for promoting false narratives. This entire resolution, Dr. Paul, promotes false narratives. That's the irony. Yeah. Go to the next one. I'm just going to go to a few of the clauses because every single one of them you could point out. But here's just the first one, okay? Now, this is not to defend anything. It's just to say that this bill itself does what it accuses her of doing. So whereas Representative Rashida Taleb, within 24 hours of the October 7th barbaric attack on Jewish citizens of the state of Israel, representing the deadliest days of Jews since the Holocaust defended the brutal rapes, murders, beheadings, and kidnappings of Americans, defended the beheadings of Israelis by Hamas. That's interesting because the beheadings, I underline, and it's a distasteful thing, Dr. Paul, but it's worth digging into. Go to the next one. Because the beheadings was a narrative that was put out right away. Here's President Biden. U.S. President Biden on brutal terror attack by Hamas on Israeli people. I have confirmed terrorists beheading children. So they want to put it out there that Hamas is beheading children. Go to the next one. It was immediately clarified by the White House saying, Biden did not actually see confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children as he claimed. So the narrative is starting to fall apart. He didn't see anything. Netanyahu told him this. Keep going further. And here's a major Turkish news network. They went on the ground and interviewed. Israeli army says it does not have confirmation about allegations that Hamas beheaded babies. Uh, go on. This is um, go to the next one, please. Yeah, this is the Andalou news service. Uh, when Andalou contacted the Israeli army spokesperson unit over the phone and asked about the allegations, she said, we have seen the news, but we do not have any details or confirmation. Now, that was the unit that was there. And I don't want to belabor the point, but I just want to point out that the clause itself was 
putting forward a false narrative about beheadings. And it's, it's horrific, and it got people's attention quickly, but it turns out it wasn't true. Yet still, they added the false narrative in here. Does that remind you about the lies told about the Iraqi war? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and Gaddafi with the rape pills and oh, this and yeah. that. Yeah. You know, there, there has been uh, some other expression uh, dealing with this and who's the ba- bad people and who's doing the most wicked things. And that happens to be a more democratic way of doing it and not necessarily bad if it's done peacefully. And that's the demonstration. That's why we need a little bit of balance, a little bit of truth-telling. So I thought that uh, good coverage there. And, of course, yeah, with the demonstrations, we've seen some people, people on uh, the pro-Israeli side being violent, people on the pro-Palestinian side becoming violent, uh, so-called attacks on the White House, and so on and so forth, people trying to climb the fence and so on. And, uh, you know, all of it, of course, comes because I think in many cases, because many people think that they they need to be able to steer the government the way that the government should go. And this was something that, you know, we've been talking about in pro peace, uh, pro peace aisles for a long time when it came to Ukraine. Uh, but this is really much more intense now with the Israeli-Palestinian thing. And I think it's interesting because Rashida Tlaib, coming from around the Dearborn, Michigan area, people are like, oh, Dearborn is, you know, it's this hotbed of Islamic people and so on. And she represents this and she, her allegiances aren't right and so on. So let me get this straight. When Ted Kennedy's family, which is from Irish Catholic stock, when they got into political power and Ted Kennedy's father had a lot of sway and made some money from rum run, run, running and things like that, um, I didn't hear the same sort of thing about representation for, say, Catholic Irish people. Or uh, let's say you get a black person who's voted in or a Hispanic person who's voted in or whatever, right? Why is why is this somehow Rashida Tlaib and what she has to say about the people from her homeland, why is that somehow distinct, unique, and bad compared to all the other ones, Right. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. But again, it's all trapped within this tragedy of the commons situation. You've got all these different blocks that, you know, the founders understood that you would get these different groups, these different parties, these different factions, as they as they would call them. And they would all start arguing. And the Marxists, as David Knight noted in his great conversation with a woman today talking about Mao's America and her new book, which I ordered right after I saw her with David Knight. Um, uh, it was uh, quite interesting because, you know, I put a, a comment into the, into the text and I said, yeah, all Marxism is, in essence, cultural Marxism. It hides under the cloak of so-called economics, but it's class envy. It's all class envy. And then if they can apply new ways to in, 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 enrage people with feelings of envy and that they have been not treated fairly and that somebody else has more than they have because of some exploitation, whatever they can make up, they will do so to split people apart. And then the only answer is through getting the power of the state on your side. And it always increases the power of the state and decreases the power of peaceful interaction because the state will have to regulate how people get together, what is fair and so on and so forth. And so, we are, generally speaking, I think in this audience, for peace uh, and um, trying to leave our neighbors alone. And it's interesting, you know, when you put a show together, because you're just reminded of how quiet many people were on the conservative side when we were looking at things like this. Ukraine, as 
the Ukrainian government was overthrown by Obama forces and Atlantic Council forces, many of whom have great friends in the Republican Party. For some reason, they didn't really speak up. Uh, they have many people in the Republican Party who are all in favor of Ukraine. And I see so many people on the left who are in favor of Ukraine, and yet Ukraine is closely tied, allied with Nazis. They have Nazis in their military. So here's one of the latest developments. You probably heard about this yesterday, and we reported on this last week with the two different, the comparison of the Time Magazine from earlier this year, which celebrated Zelensky, and Time Magazine from, what was it, last week now. Uh, the new one's probably out. I know, I don't keep up on Time Magazine. Uh, the idea that Time Magazine is putting him now tiny and saying he's pretty much alone in the world. Well, he's still going to get billions of dollars probably from the United States, but it looks like the spigot is starting to get closed off a little bit. And, of course, it never was deservedly open. A top aide to Ukrainian President blah, 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 Zelensky has said the West needs to keep backing Ukraine's war with Russia and hit back at comments made by Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney about growing war fatigue. Now, what's interesting about the Giorgia Maloney thing is that that comment actually came because she got spoof phone called. You know those Russian guys? who have called up uh, various politicians and convinced them that they're speaking with somebody that they're, they're not. They did it to Ms. Maloney, Prime Minister Maloney. And the, the person who passed the phone call on to her has resigned in disgrace because in the conversation, she actually acknowledges that they're getting tired of this. They're getting tired of the support for Ukraine. People don't want to give them money anymore. Maloney made the comments last week while on the phone with Russian pranksters, whom she thought were African Union officials. Quote, there is a lot of fatigue. I have to say the truth from all the sides. We are near the moment in which everybody understands that we need a way out. Andrei Yermak, the head of Zelensky's office, claimed the West would be less safe if it stopped fueling the proxy war, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. And also something that's finally happening, pop media on the right are actually acknowledging part of what we've known for a long time. Hamas and New York Post is uh, tilts very, very much towards uh, catering to Jewish people because of the population of New York. Hamas leaders worth staggering 11 billion revel in luxury. Where, of course, in Qatar, as we've mentioned numerous times for weeks on the show. But is there any sign? Is there any sign that for all those weeks, the United States government, which has known about this, was asking for those guys to be extradited to the United States as so-called terrorists? I thought Hamas was terrorist. Oh, that's right. Those are the people that the U.S. government wanted to lead the Palestinians in Gaza. Those are the people that on video we know, and we know from testimony from other people, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu wanted to lead the Palestinian people in Hamas because there would be a stone wall with which he could not negotiate and against which he would have to keep pushing and fighting. They would be oppositional. 
they would be confrontational. And they got what they wanted. And the leaders have been in Qatar. And we've known about this all along. So why now are we only hearing about it? Well, it's because Representative Andy Ogles of Tennessee is sponsoring a bill that would strip Qatar of its status as a key U.S. ally unless they turn over those guys. He's finally doing it. They could have done it on day one. They've known all along. Cutter is so closely tied to the CIA that, as we know, as Seymour Hersh has reported, Cutter was involved with the weapons rat lines that went into Turkey and into Libya and into Syria as they were trying to get them into Syria to feed al-Nusra Front and other heavily hardcore religious zealots that evidently, if they live in Dearborn, Michigan, are bad. Those would be Islamic people, whether it's Uh, I don't know what branch of Islamicism is the bad one right now. I'm not sure. United States taxpayers can fund the weapons makers who then will have their weapons used by El Nusra Front. And Qatar will act as one of the rat line suppliers working with the CIA. It's amazing to see how this all works out, everybody. And I saw that information about the Hamas stuff early this morning, thanks to the folks at Redacted. We continue on Liberty Conspiracy live on Free Talk Live. All right, everybody, we've got so much to get into. And so we have the opportunity now to show you a little something that is the theme for the night. Here it is. This comes from, again, an anarcho-Christian who posts some fantastic memes. Yes, as Moses stands there holding the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. Well, but don't forget, little asterisks on those, unless the bad guy is standing behind the civilians. What else can you do, right? Yeah, those are the Ten Commandments, according to Lindsey Graham, perhaps. So, last night was the very exciting GOP debate. I know, I know, a lot of, a lot of the people I know really enjoyed uh, not watching it. <laughs> However, I didn't watch the whole thing either, but I did watch pieces of it. I watched the pieces as they fell apart. And uh, I got to say, it was pretty darn shocking. It was amazing to see. First of all, a lot of people are talking about Vivek Ramaswamy and how he handled himself. He's very impressive and so on. I got some problems with Vivek. We'll look at those tomorrow night uh, as to whether or not one can really say that he trusts Vivek Ramaswamy after his association with uh, the governor of uh, Ohio and how he tried to... sell a a jab tracking system. Then there was the debate as to whether or not you've heard it before on the show. Uh, Evidently, uh, he was listed as being associated with the World Economic Forum. And then he said that he wasn't. And I don't know. I don't know what to trust on that. But Vivek shown because he slammed the debate presenters and said that they were biased and that for month after month after month, they resisted actually telling the truth about the Hunter Biden laptop. 
Uh, they kept pushing forward the Russian interference narrative and so on when there wasn't any interference. And he was right about that. He also really slammed Nikki Haley and called her uh, um, uh, Dick Cheney in, in spike uh, three inch heels. And then he went so far as to say, hey, you know, you're critical of was it TikTok or Instagram? Uh, but your daughter is on TikTok or Instagram. Her daughter's like 25 years old. So Nikki just could have come back and said, I mean, it's all it's all like, you know, it's just it's schoolyard bullying and announcing and fighting and stuff like that. That really isn't pertinent to real subjects. Although the Dick Cheney point about Nikki Haley was pretty darn smart and on the money and uh, not necessarily smart. It was pretty obvious. Uh, but also the observation about the news networks and their people. And how they have uh, they have hidden news and things that also I thought was pretty valuable and uh, came out at just the right time. So, however, this does stand because now we get the opportunity. I want to show you some of the segments that I've got of video on the consistently bloodthirsty and morally not just ambiguous but uh, empty completely vacuous uh, stances of these people when it comes to Israel and Hamas and essentially the idea that the United States must support the state of Israel and other places. Otherwise, the existence of the United States is at stake. No concern about the Constitution or declarations of war or the fact that without a declaration of war, the United States isn't supposed to be involved in these places. U.S. bases surrounding all these different places like Iran or inside places like Poland that they just opened up earlier in the year. So let me show you a couple of these segments. Get your thoughts. And here we go. This is first addressed to the man who very clearly had to have been aware of the torture that was going on on Guantanamo when he was a JAG. He was there. He saw it. People who were there have recognized him on the island when they were there and they were captured and they were not given habeas and they were tortured day after day after day. This is the man who, on one side of it, has allowed for a little bit more local control for education and has stood a little bit better regarding the right to life, but still is inconsistent on that, and also signed two laws, two bills into law in Israel that abridge the freedom of speech, especially when it comes to criticizing the state of Israel. Whether or not he was foreshadowing what was going to be coming with the Israeli-Gaza conflict, we don't know, but it sure was easy timing. So here is a question that was posed to Ron DeSantis, and it will show you just how completely off the path these people are and how they've twisted the Monroe Doctrine into offense is defense. The United States must peddle weapons and curry favors with bloodthirsty Zionist regimes. And I say that explicitly. That is what this Israeli regime is, clearly. Here we go. President of the United States, what would you be urging Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to do at this moment? Governor DeSantis. I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. The first. Okay, so that is the first one. That's Ron DeSantis, and that's just amazingly ignorant uh, to simply call the Hamas 
the Hamas uh, terrorist group, the bloodthirsty uh, group there. Um, clearly, he's singling it out. He's befriending Bibi, calling him by his nickname, saying, finish the job. Uh, Israel, the state of Israel, the people who set up the state of Israel, they are just as culpable for thousands and thousands of deaths all through the decades since the creation of that nation state. This is not anti-Semitic speech. As I've mentioned, the Palestinians are Semitic people as well. There are many people who probably are inside Gaza who are related to people who are Jewish in the Zionist state. And they are attacking each other because Western influence put the Zionist state of Israel there in 1947, culminating decades of planning from Western forces that were allied with and tied to corporate monarchist um, forces from colonial Britain and the United States. So it's very obvious that the U.S. forces shouldn't be there. And it's also morally clear that I shouldn't be forced and you shouldn't be forced to have to say anything about picking a side about these things. But for Ron DeSantis to come out and say, finish the job, kill these bloodthirsty terrorists, and I'm paraphrasing now, uh, is to only see one side of it. And that's the side that has responded with violence to the initial aggression from the West and the implantation of the Zionist state of Israel into that land. And as I mentioned, if you want to go back into the Bible and you want to say whose land is it, then I guess it belongs to the Canaanites. I don't know. But as far as it goes over the past over 150 years, it's very clear. It's spelled out in document after document after document, whether you look at the Balfour Declaration or not. It doesn't take long to see which side has been the most aggressive side and has pushed on these people the Palestinians. And yes, they are violent reactors, but they are reactors in Hamas who were selected and pushed by the state of Israel and the United States. And the fact that the state of Israel and the politicians in the United States only this week saw one of their members in Congress propose legislation to ask Qatar where they are housing the heads of Hamas, who are multi-multi-millionaires, the fact that it took them that long, over a month, to do something that we knew on day one here, that the leaders of Hamas were living in Qatar, that they won't recognize the fact that Qatar has some uh, moral tarnish on it as well, shows just how flimsy their statements are about caring for innocent Israeli lives and bringing the terrorists to justice. That is not what this is about. It is about flushing out the remainder of the Palestinians in that land area and trying to allow the Zionist state to take it all. I have no cards in this game. I have no chips on the table. I'm not interested in making my neighbor have to decide, but they are. Let's see some more about this as other GOPers. I don't know. Maybe they were just all trying to curry favor with BAE systems. Here we go. 
The first thing I said to him when it happened was I said, finish them, finish them. I would tell him to smoke those terrorists on his southern border. And then I'll tell him as president of the United States, I'll be smoking the terrorists on our southern border. If you want to stop the 40 plus attacks on military personnel in the Middle East, you have to strike in Iran. Okay, so similar to a headline we're going to see in just a minute from antiwar.com. Every one of those things is repulsive, right? And I hate to have to open with such intense stuff. And, and, you know, in a way, I'm sort of commiserating, I guess. I'm asking for commiseration with you because I'm seeing this stuff. And it's a very lonely feeling to say, to think to oneself, geez, these people are up on a stage. These are the major players for the GOP. Are you kidding me? Every one of these people is up there saying such bloodthirsty, completely off-base, off-kilter, anti-constitutional, anti-reality stuff, not even thinking that they might be putting themselves in a position where they're going to be open to criticism, because easily when you see the last statement, the latter of Tim Scott saying, well, those, those people on the ground, they're put in danger. Well, why are they on the ground? Why are they there? I mean, that's again, we're going to see something from Syria. And if hearing the mention of Syria, you know what I'm going to be discussing if you're aware of what happened just in Syria again. Uh, But the idea that United States interlopers who are there unconstitutionally carrying firearms that are gotten through the ill-gotten gains of our taxes being given to the military-industrial complex, the idea that they have to be there, as Tim Scott says, to defend themselves? Let's watch these again, one by one, and go through them. The first thing I said to him when it happened was I said, finish them. Okay, so clearly she's saying that she's very close to Bibi Netanyahu. I wouldn't be proud of that, ma'am, okay? Uh, and then uh, and we have your video where you said finish them, just like Lindsey Graham. We know what you said and we know that that calls for in any possible parlance that calls for the deaths of thousands of innocent people. We know that the minute you say that we know that. How about you say, I don't live in your country. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I want to stop. American taxpayers from having to pay for both sides because they were paying for both sides very disproportionately for the Israeli side for decades to the tune of $3.8 billion for years. But they were also subsidizing the Hamas government, the government that, as you know, Bibi Netanyahu, our friend Bibi, wanted in there because he knew they would be recalcitrant. They wouldn't talk. They wouldn't negotiate. And he could use them as an oppositional force to say, we need to go in and fight these guys. He knew that they would come back violently. And yet he didn't call for them being extradited from Qatar. We didn't hear this from Nikki Haley. How come we didn't hear any of these people talking about, hey, those people who lead Hamas should be extradited from Qatar. Why? Because the people, the Qatari leadership is very close friends with the CIA. As I mentioned last night, they were intimately involved in the rat lines to funnel weapons through Qatar into places like Libya for the overthrow of of Gaddafi. And then they wanted to get the weapons up into Syria. But the Benghazi incident happened that night when they were supposed to transfer some of those weapons. Just read some of Seymour Hersh's stuff on the rat lines. They also had connections going into Turkey. But Erdogan has not necessarily been on the CIA side for a while now. 
So they've been working in opposition to him, sometimes friendly to him. It's been a difficult road for those CIA folks. So that woman on the screen right there to say finish them has to know what a loaded statement that is. That doesn't come clean. Okay, as Echo and the Money Men would say, you can't do that clean. So how about you don't have a place to say anything about that? It's not your place. Finish them. Oh, but that's right. People who support you at military industrial contractors like it when you say that. Now let's continue. I would tell him to smoke those terrorists on his southern border. And then I'll tell him as president of the United States, I'll be smoking the terrorists on our southern border. So don't forget, of course, that the uh, smoking of the terrorists on their southern border. Well, um, the southern region of Gaza was, as we mentioned, where one of the IDF heads said or one of the heads of their military said more than once in an interview, we want those people who are refugees, the civilians to move south. Even as he said that, I said, they're bombing that area. And they were. And then guess what? They continued to bomb it. And we showed shots of it yesterday. So the very place where they're saying the refugees need to escape, because, of course, the Hamas guys are hiding behind the innocents. So in order to save the innocents in this area that Israel has concentrated more and more and more and more, they have to move in that tiny, tiny area into a place where the Israeli forces say, go there, and then they bomb it. It's insane. It's, it's, it's like, it, it, it is like an insane asylum being run by the crazy people. And then we've got Tim Scott with his statement. If you want to stop the 40-plus attacks on military personnel in the Middle East, you have to strike in Iran. <laughs> if you want to stop the 40-plus attacks of military personnel who are in places where they're not supposed to be, you need to declare war, or maybe not even declare war, just attack a sovereign nation state that is surrounded, as Elon Musk and many of you have seen that meme, surrounded by U.S. military bases, but for some reason doesn't have its military bases all around the world, right? How odd. That would be the nation state of Iran that the United States overthrew in 1953. The nation state of Iran, when there was a counter coup decades later, not a counter coup, but a counter revolution decades later to toss out the Shah, who was implanted by the U.S. CIA, when they took over and they became the radical Islamist state of Iran, right, uh, suddenly the state of Israel under Saddam Hussein, declares war against them. And the United States puppet of Saddam Hussein gets chemical weapons and all sorts of banned munitions that he can use on the Iranians. Crazy. That's absolutely crazy. That is just part of what we got to see last night. There's also another part, and I'll discuss it tomorrow, about Nikki Haley's absurd position on abortion. But for more, I want to turn to the very insightful folks at the Ron Paul website, or the Ron Paul channel for the Ron Paul Liberty Report and the Ron Paul Institute for Peace. Here is some very good responsive material 
that you can check out. Kim Iverson retweeted this, and Dan McAdams picked up on it, and Ron Paul and Dan McAdams pick up on what seems to be happening now, seeing what happened last night on that debate stage with the GOP. Real quick, here we go. You know, the, the, so the person that posted that little clip, that little montage, if you can go to the next, if you can go to that next, uh, not uh, audio clip, but the next picture, um, this is what he said as a comment under that quote, and this is, uh, I'm really important, I don't know who it is, uh, but he says, Gaza wouldn't exist right now if the GOP were in control. People should be thankful we have President Biden in charge. And it's not long ago I would have laughed at that, but looking at what they've said, I realize it's actually true. And Kim Iverson, who I think is very independent-minded, um, you can't pin where she is politically, um, which is good. That means she's actually thinking. And she had a very good comment on this, on this clip we just watched. She said, Republicans absolutely would be worse in this moment with this particular conflict. And th- th- she means Gaza. And they're worse with China, too. Since the Russia-Ukraine war is now at a stalemate, and there's no real risk of escalation, I can now say the GOP is hands down, once again, the most dangerous warmongering of the two parties. And that is a little hard to accept, but I think she's absolutely right. Yeah, she is. And you can pick and choose on on the day of the week because some are going to be worse than others. But still back to the total philosophy, you know, the interventionism and the annoyance. Because there was a time when I was very pleased to try to work with progressive Democrats who took the position of, of less warmongering. And so we'll see. I mean, who would have thought that uh, you'd be getting uh, you'd be at least uh, getting more common sense from the squad members. Right. Talk about common sense. Let's turn to antiwar.com right now. Uh, I made reference to this just about four minutes ago. This is what I'm discussing about Syria. More U.S. airstrikes in eastern Syria against IRGC site. And there's even more. Wait till you see this. And of course, the argument is, well, we've got to protect American interests there. What, what American interests? What are you talking about? What what, how do you? I don't understand this. You're an occupying agency. U.S. launches more airstrikes in eastern Syria against IRGC site. The Pentagon says the strikes targeted a facility used by Iran's IRGC and affiliated groups, referring to Shia militias. The Pentagon said on Wednesday, oh, but They must be listening to Tim Scott. I guess you can just do it anywhere, anytime. The Pentagon said on Wednesday night that the U.S. launched more airstrikes on eastern Syria that targeted a facility used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, and affiliated groups. Well, they just they need to get affiliated with the U.S. That's the thing. They need to get affiliated with the U.S. and try to overthrow Assad. Then everything will be fine. It's totally cool. Just look at ISIS. Look at the Amnesty Front. Look at the Nazis in Ukraine. As long as you do what the U.S. government wants, it doesn't matter what your moral ambiguity might be. Go for it. Quote, this strike was conducted by two U.S. F-15s. What? I, wow, that's really cool that though they suddenly appear over there. It's like they belong there in that 59th state against a weapons storage facility. Yeah, you know, sort of like the weapons storage facilities that the United States helped prop up 
for Saddam Hussein. But continuing, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said in a statement, now, I wonder when Lloyd Austin will be prosecuted for war crimes. We'll see. We'll be back with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Listen to Liberty Conspiracy Live every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. on Gardner Goldsmith's Twitter, at Gard Goldsmith, or stream and chat with the other chatters at Rumble and Rockman. Just look us up under Liberty Conspiracy. We continue on Liberty Conspiracy Live on Free Talk Live. You you look at the stark difference between information sharing that we get to do and the lack of transparency and information sharing from the so-called gatekeepers of truth, the uh, arbiters of truth, the government, you know, they tell you, well, we're worried about misinformation and disinformation and so on and so forth. And we sift through things. You know, I'm going through stuff earlier today about the Yemeni down, the Yemenis downing the U.S. drone. Is that confirmable? It does look like it is. I'm looking at the information about the IDF and whether or not the IDF fired on its own people and possibly on uh, some of those victims of that uh, October 7th raid. Looks like that is confirmed as well. Uh, but then, you know, you put a caveat out there and then we get to all sift through it. We're all researchers. We communicate with each other when they claim that they're the ones who can hold on to the information. They have every incentive to manipulate the information themselves, first of all, because they don't have any checkers at all. They can fund anybody they want to to so-called fact check and block us, which, uh, you know, you've heard it before. That happened to me. It's probably happened to you. I have my friends at MRC TV. You know, it's been unbelievable. And they want to do even more. Right. So it's it's an amazing thing to see that stark difference between the almost lightning fast ability that we have. And, and Twitter has improved in this in this regard. It's been a great thing to see, to be able to share information, get that information out and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, at the same time, how stodgy the government is for their own benefit to not give us information, right? To slow stuff down, to manipulate things, to give us different ideas, different angles and things like that. And with that in mind, I want to turn to uh, a couple pieces of information. Yeah, just as reminders, uh, again, talked about this as a reminder last night, we had the Stanford University in addition to the virality project, they had the election integrity partnership and the House Judiciary Committee noted that they were working with the government to try to affect social media to block posts that they didn't like politically. So that's a pretty big deal. Now, a couple other things I want to mention, and I brought this up very briefly, that uh, if you do a quick Google search, you'll see some stuff on this. But first, let me show you what the activist post had on this. Uh, FCC commissioner warns Biden's digital equity plan follows, allows federal government to, quote, micromanage nearly every aspect of how the Internet functions. Now, this is separate and different from what you saw me report on at MRC TV, which is his executive order that he issued last week on so-called artificial intelligence. And there's my video about it. You can check that out over at MRC TV, right? Uh, that was 
I have that all there. It's the executive order on the safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of artificial intelligence. And as I noted, you can you can find the hyperlink to it there. I'll just click on it so you can see it. October 30th was the date. So it was actually even earlier than I thought it was. And then you go into some of the details of it. And I've got details quoted in there about different things, testing and evaluations, including post-deployment performance for monitoring AI and all these different things. And as I noted, if people think this is not going to touch them, uh, they have to remember that the so-called Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity, C2PA, has been around for a long time. It includes organizations tied to the British government like the BBC, Microsoft, Sony, Adobe, and others, major corporations, and they want to make sure that the hardware inside your computer all is traceable and anything you produce on the computer has a has an attached identifier on it that can be so-called authenticated. In other words, that you can be identified. But in addition to that, I noted that the executive order from Biden requires different branches of the federal government, and especially within the Defense Department, so-called, to find out anything that is so-called dual use. Dual use applies to civil or what they apply, what they claim is um, military applications of any software, any kind of artificial intelligence. That is any program. So anything that goes into that, whether it be a letter or a number or anything, could be used for dual use. It could be used for civil or military purposes. It opens the door to let the federal government, without the Fourth Amendment being recognized, search or demand papers from anyone. And again, I'll refer this to you here. It says companies developing or demonstrating an intent to develop potential dual use foundation models to provide the federal government they must on an ongoing basis with information, reports or records regarding the following. Any ongoing or planned activities related to training, developing or producing dual use foundation models, including the physical and cybersecurity protections taken to assure the integrity of that training process against sophisticated threats. So you have to give them all your codes. You'll have to show them everything. Everything's going to be transparent to them, and they don't want to be transparent to you. And besides that, they don't have any moral or constitutional power to do that. And even if they had something written in the Constitution, it wouldn't be a moral power. It's just a bunch of goons, right? So that, again, is the Biden AIEO from October 30th. My piece on this came out November 5th. By the way, my piece on the tariffs has not come out yet at MRC TV. I'm not sure if they're waiting to get closer to the meeting between the Chinese leader and uh, so-called leader and Joe Biden. I'm not sure about that, but uh, we'll find out more later. But I also want to refer you to um, the activist post, back to the activist post, to the FCC. Now, again, this is this is a reminder for people, and I posted about this at uh, Twitter today, and you can find another story about this on Twitter, and I've responded to it today if you want more information about this. But being frank, being frank at Activist Post writes the Federal Communications Commission, and that is the source of the problem. We need to just make sure that people don't, you know, again, don't lose the forest for the trees here. Um, the Federal Communications Commission 
is supposed to protect Americans from tele from the telecom industry. Well, that's what they tell you. It actually controls speech. It's unconstitutional and it divvies up power and plays favorites. It's a power gaming system. Years ago, it was identified as a captured agency because it has a tendency to not do so. For example, in 2021, a federal court ruled in favor of petitioners who sued the agency for not updating wireless radiation guidelines, including 5G, since 1996. That was the 1996 Telecommunications Act that started to open things up for uh, for cell phones and allotted a bunch of the spectrum uh, away from broadcast television towards cell phones over the years, which is one of the reasons why uh, uh, I had a professor who invested very early in cell phone technology, became a multimillionaire. He was aware of what was going on. And the agency refuses to address this. Nevertheless, recently, FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr issued a warning that should send shockwaves throughout the country. Federal Communications Commissioner Carr is calling the Biden administration's digital equity plan for all internet services and infrastructure an unlawful power grab. Now, this comes in conjunction. It's not completely the same thing as the so-called, um, uh, what do they call that, uh, net neutrality. Okay, this is more than net neutrality. Here we go. President Biden's plan hands the administrative state effective control of all Internet services and infrastructure in the country. So before I go on, let me just mention net neutrality is the FCC telling Internet service providers and cable companies that they can't charge more for those who would like to get faster service at their home or business. That's a complete infringement of contract. People should be able to do that if they want to, right? It might not be existing contract, but it's an impediment against future contract. It's an impediment against, uh, it's an impediment blocking future developments. It blocks the incentivization of development that could lead to faster internet. If companies see that the door is open to allow them to gain more in profit by providing a faster service, well, they would definitely be incentivized to do so. If you got a burger joint that can make 10 burgers per hour, but there's a demand for 15 burgers per hour, why would you not think it's bad for the state to say you can't charge more to deliver things more quickly? You should be able to invest in that and deliver it more quickly because you've got a greater demand from some people. Hey, I need 15 burgers in an hour. I need it for my office. Sorry, can't do that, right? It should be up to us. Biden's plan hands the administrative state effective control of all internet services and infrastructure in the country. Never before in the roughly 40-year history of the public internet has the FCC or any federal agency for that matter claimed this degree of control over it. Indeed, President Biden's plan calls for the FCC to apply a far-reaching set of government controls, including net neutrality, but that's just part of it, that the agency has not applied to any technology in the modern era, including Title II common carriers. Carr previewed an important FCC vote next week on November 15th, and it's dominated by left-wingers now, about whether to implement the president's plan. So maybe some conservatives might have wake, woken up years ago to say the FCC is unconstitutional and needs to be eliminated. But then again, 
if that was challenged, maybe it would have gone to a Supreme Court that was populated by mostly left-wingers at that time. Let's say when Reagan was around. Who knows, right? All these things have been set up against us to actually continue the growth of the government. These agencies are never eliminated. And if people try to eliminate them and there are lawsuits against it, then you've got to see, well, what political paradigm was operating when that person was appointed, when that person was appointed in the judicial branch. And of course, we still have to pay for all of it. So here's Brendan Carr. He says, next week, the FCC will vote on President Biden's plan to give the administrative state effective control of all Internet services and infrastructure. I oppose President Biden's sweeping, unprecedented and unlawful plan. Here's a little bit more. And the name of this, Office of Commissioner Brendan Carr, Carr opposes President Biden's plan to give the administrative state effective control. He says, Democrats have been in charge of the FCC and administrative agencies in D.C. for approaching 12 out of the last 16 years. They have they have had the opportunity over that stretch of time to put in place nearly any federal telecom policy of their choosing. In fact, the federal government has allocated hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars for the purpose of ending the digital divide, while Democrats have run the administrative state. After all that time and after all of that spending, the Biden administration has concluded that the Democrats' policies are not working. So the Biden administration, he says, is taking away all the wrong lessons from its failed broadband policies. Well, there, there should be nothing to do with this. This is the problem for Mr. Carr. You shouldn't be there. You, should, you shouldn't be playing favorites. He says, last month, President Biden gave the FCC its marching orders. The president called on the FCC to implement a one-page section of the 2021 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Infrastructure Act, by adopting new rules of breathtaking scope, all in the name of so-called digital equity. For the first time ever, those rules would give the federal government a roving mandate to micromanage every aspect of how the internet functions, from how ISPs allocate capital and where they build, to the services that consumers can purchase, from the profits that ISPs can realize and how they market and advertise services, to the discounts and promotions that consumers can receive. Talk about central planning. And none of that will contribute to a better internet for us. Writes Carr, needless to say, Congress never contemplated the sweeping regulatory regime the President Biden, President Biden asked the FCC to adopt, let alone did they authorize the agency to implement it. Nonetheless, the commission will vote next week, November 15th. And I just want to give you a little more on the next page here real quick. Thumbnails. He says, don't take my word for it. The text of the order expressly provides that the FCC would be empowered for the first time to regulate each and every ISP. Bullet point one. They have a quote. He has a quote, Secretary Carr here from the FCC. Network infrastructure deployment, network reliability, network upgrades, network maintenance, consumer or customer premises, equipment, and installation. So they can even monitor the installation going into your home. Bullet point two, speeds, capacities, latency, data caps, 
throttling price, throttling, pricing, promotional rates, and they'll just say throttling when they want to. They, they, won't, they won't even prove it. They just threaten. That's one of the big things. It's all going to be up to their arbitrary claims. And then it'll be up to the corporations to have to respond in court, which will be expensive. So what will they do? They'll conform. Promotional rates, imposition of late fees, opportunity for equipment rental, installation time, contract renewal terms, service termination terms, and use of customer credit and account history. Finally, and this is just the bullet points. I'm not going to go into the rest of it. It's, it's If you want to read the whole thing, check it out. Um, you can find it uh, via the activist post, post folks. I've retweeted it. It's, it's, it's way down on my tweets. I'll retweet uh, this as well after the show tonight from uh, Brendan Carr. So it's easier for you to find if you want to get this information. I want to make sure this information is as available to you as possible so that this is a good resource for you every night at six o'clock to come and say, okay, I want to get that. I want to find that. Guards got that. Guards got this. So I hope I'm doing a good job for you. Mandatory arbitration clauses, pricing, deposits, discounts, customer service, language options, credit checks, marketing, or advertising, contract renewal, upgrades, account termination, transfers to another covered entity, and service suspension. All will be covered. I'm retweeting that right now. You can find that on my Twitter feed, at Guard Goldsmith, right now if you want to find it. Now, again, forest for the trees. The forest here is their constitution is being misread through the Interstate Commerce Clause. And they, since the creation of the Federal Radio Commission, which originally started to cover telegraph and then went on to radio, even as they gave AT&T a monopoly over telephones during World War I, and that AT&T monopoly over phones lasted for decades after that, almost to the turn of the century, and since saw AT&T split into things like 9X, PacBell, and things like that, which then turned into things like Verizon. So we are dealing now with the latent after, after effects of a corporate fascist system stemming from even before World War I, with part of the big corporate hand that puts its fingers on the scales, the FCC, which was started as the FRC, the Federal Radio Commission. Its argument, the argument behind it, of course, is that things go over, radio waves go over state borders. They need to be controlled by the government. It's in the Constitution, the Interstate Commerce Clause. It can do that, as I've mentioned, that pertains to state-on-state conflicts, and it's supposed to be about tariffs imposed by some states against products coming in from other states. James Madison noted in letters that it is a re, uh, it is a remedial measure, not a preemptive measure, and it's state to state with capital S, not person to person within the states. So that is an absolutely fallacious argument. The second part of it is, and I've mentioned this, I actually got in a disagreement and conversation with then Congressman, now Senator Ed Markey on a plane in Washington's Reagan Airport at the time, and uh, 2004, February 2004, March of 2004, March. And um, they were trying to impose steeper penalties through the FCC for what the federal government calls indecency. Again, Congress is prohibited from infringing on the freedom of speech, explicitly prohibited. 
So the states are not. The FCC is an absolute, absolute uh, affront to the founders' concepts. And it would behoove anybody who gets into that office, whether it's the presidency or even the Congress, they're swearing oaths. All the bureaucrats swear oaths. Maybe they could read it and actually be honest with themselves rather than living a lie. The FCC is unconstitutional. It always has been used to play favorites, to hand out licenses to people who play the game the way the politicians want it played. Roosevelt was a master of this. As I mentioned, television came in five years later than it should have because the FCC at that time, which was the FRC, was being manipulated by the people who ran it. And they had cozy friends with radio broadcasters. The radio broadcasters knew that there would be competition. So until the radio broadcasters could get into television broadcasting and amass the wealth, they didn't want any competition. They wanted to be able to start their own television. They had to wait. And of course, the FRC would not license television. Imagine all the great inventions that could have come around if they had allowed it to happen. They delayed it. They delayed the development of human civilization. They retarded it. That's what government always does, because developments only come naturally through us making our own decisions. The basic axiom of economics, as Ludwig von Mises has pointed out, as so many in the Austrian school have pointed out, Murray Rothbard and others. And in fact, I'll show you on my Twitter feed if you want to see. There's a great quote from Murray Rothbard that sort of fits tonight's program. Brought to you by BAA Systems, of course. But on the freedom front, let's just mention that, uh, no, not Murray Rothbard, um, Ludwig von Mises, who escaped from the Nazis, almost was killed trying to escape from the Nazis. He wrote this about transactions and money and how they reveal preferences. And they allow us to figure out what is resourceful and what is not and signal that to others. Money is the universally used medium of exchange, nothing else. Only because money is the common medium of exchange, because most goods and services can be sold and bought on the market against money, and only as far as this is the case can men use money prices in reckoning. And that is how even people who don't meet each other can signal their values to others, and people can adjust their performance in their life to actually serve the purposes of people they've never met. And if you ever want to give a great essay to a youngster, have them read I Pencil by Reed. If you get a chance, read I Pencil. It's, there's an audio version on YouTube. Play it for kids a couple times. Ask them their opinions about it. Talking about children, I'm going to round off the show with this, everybody. This is a sad story coming out of England. LifeSite News. UK judge orders eight-month-old taken off life support despite Italy offering treatment and citizenship. This was supposed to happen today. I haven't seen whether there's a follow-up. Let me just renew this. I'll take this off. Oh, there is. there are, there are two other stories I want to share with you. Um, there is the image. That's Indy Gregory. Nottingham, England. I've been in Nottingham. It's an interesting place. Of course, Sheriff of Nottingham, you know, Robin Hood, all the legends there. It's in the Midlands. A UK judge has ruled that life support for eight-month-old Indy Gregory must be withdrawn Thursday. 
thus rejecting the efforts of the baby's parents along with offers of treatment from a Roman hospital and Italian citizenship. On the afternoon of November 8th, Mr. Justice Robert Peel, government so-called justice, ruled that life support for Indy is to be withdrawn as of 2 p.m. local time. So that would have been uh, 9 a.m. our time. Hospital authorities even threatened to remove her life support today without her family being present. I'm going to go down to the bottom here, see if there's an update. I don't see any updates, so I'll try to get that information for you tomorrow rather than searching for it right now. But uh, you can find the information at LifeSite. There's Giorgio Maloney, who offered citizenship to the child. I'm Gardner Goldsmith. Thanks for tuning in. Listen to Liberty Conspiracy live every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. on Gardner Goldsmith's Twitter at Gard Goldsmith or stream and chat with the other chatters at Rumble and Rothman. Just look us up under Liberty Conspiracy. This is Mark Edge with Free Talk Live. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com is one of the best real estate agents I've ever worked with. I've been through about two dozen real estate transactions in my life, and I feel like I know what I'm doing, but there's always the things that you don't know that you don't know. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com found a problem with the house that I was buying that ultimately saved me $65,000. He's a consummate professional, holds his people to his own high standards, and I would unequivocally recommend him for any real estate purchase in New Hampshire. Don't sell yourself short. Contact PorcupineRealEstate.com.